0: This
1: is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
0: Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio podcasts can be found on our website money.mpbonline.org or on your smart devices podcasting platform
2: from mpb think radio this is in legal terms to show all about you and your rights our host is professor richard gershon of the university of mississippi school of law um java chapman and uh, good morning professor gershon how are you doing today Professor Gershon, are you I can see you on my on my screen. Um, we have uh, Mr. J White in the studio, he's going to be uh, helping us out this morning. But we do have our special guest in the building, um, Francis Springer, attorney Francis Springer. He always comes in and uh, helps us out from the Springer Law Firm. How you doing this morning, Francis?
3: Morning, I'm fine. How are
2: you? Oh, I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. I'm glad we're having this uh, conversation this morning um, about um, wage and hour law. It's kind of um, uh, right on time as uh, MLK uh holiday was just yesterday. Right. Hopefully everybody enjoyed their um their day off or a day on, as a lot of people like to say, not a day off, but Thank a day you. on, a day of service. But um uh, you know many may not know that as uh Dr. King, you know, before his untimely assassination, um, really shifted from civil rights, um, specifically for um African Americans, but uh shifted to uh po- poverty. Um, for all Americans in, um, you know, you may remember in Memphis, Tennessee, it was actually on a march for sanitation workers for fair wages. That's correct. So it's kind of, uh, you know, it's kind of uh, interesting that we have this show on today. And um, how do you feel about that, Professor Gershon? I think we have you on now.
0: Great, great job. It's great to work with you. And, uh, yeah, I think that's a really good point because, you know, people's jobs are their livelihoods. And, uh, you know, a lot of times though, people don't have control uh, when they have a job. They can't, you know, there's not a lot of power that they have. Um, and so uh, that's why we have laws that ensure at least that there are some fair labor standards. And uh, Dr. King's uh, march uh, was, was important in that regard. But, you know, there's still poverty. I mean, there was a war on poverty uh, that we're still fighting. And that's why we're really happy to have Francis Springer here today, uh, as you mentioned, I mean, you know, Francis, you are a former police officer, former uh, law enforcement officer. And uh, and a lot of times we have you on to talk about criminal defense and, and, uh, you know, and your your rights in terms of uh, dealing with uh, law enforcement. But today we're talking about uh, wage and hour law. So how did you get involved with that?
3: Uh, Good morning, Professor Gerson. Oh. How I get involved in it, I guess, is uh, when I graduated law school in 2011, the market wasn't the best in the world. So I hung the little uh, shingle Springer Law Office and have been doing uh, what I can since then. But long story short, uh, since I was a, a deputy sheriff, I represent a lot of officers through the Police Benevolent Association. And uh, one of the issues that uh, officers have is with overtime, comp time. We'll explain kind of what that is. It's a little different for government employees. But I had some uh, Hines County deputies that had an issue with overtime and not being paid compensation time. So I took those on and I began to learn the Fair Labor Standards Act. And it's kind of a, a unique area because it's easy to really prove or disprove if you've been wronged. Because the hours are recorded, the duties are known, and you can kind of fit it into the FLSA. And uh, I've just kind of enjoyed that and had several others that have come up over the years. Matter of fact, I've got several right now against a uh, sheriff's department in the north part of the state that has been just uh, not complying with the law, and we just got to make that right.
0: Well, you know, let's start with something that we've all heard about. Yeah, you know, we talk, we hear about the minimum wage. What, what exactly is the minimum wage, and does Mississippi have, uh, you know, its own state law regarding minimum wage?
3: No, Mississippi has very few laws that uh, help employees, and minimum wage is not one of them. So Mississippi relies on the federal minimum wage and the federal Fair Labor Standards Act. Which currently, and has been for a number of years, that amount is $7.25 an hour. And that's the base uh, rate that an employer, a qualifying employer, has to pay a qualifying employee. All right.
0: uh, so when does that apply? When, do you, when does a company, like, so if I, if I hire somebody to babysit for me, and uh, they agree to, you know, $5 an hour, uh, is, am I violating uh, the Fair Labor Standards Act?
3: most likely not uh that's that's one <clears throat> excuse me that's one employee working for for basically a private person to qualify as an employee under the fair labor standards act you've got to generally work for a larger company uh one that has a a total volume annual volume of over a half a million dollars and if it's lower than that, it can be subject to employees that actually deal with interstate commerce that's one area that the federal government gets just about jurisdiction over anything is interstate commerce. So if someone had a small business that answers a telephone, that sends mail, anything like that, that deals with interstate commerce, they're most likely going to be uh, governed by the Fair Labor Standards
0: Act. And so now, well, I, and, and we also hear about overtime. Uh, so when does overtime kick in and, and how does that work?
3: For the majority of what are called non-exempt employees, which are two categories of employees of those businesses, exempt and non-exempt, right now we'll talk about non-exempt, those employees have to be paid at time and a half for anything over 40 hours in a work week. And the theory behind that is to prevent employers from requiring too many hours of employees and um, and if the employee does work over those hours, they should be compensated higher than that because that's when you begin to have more stress on you and, and taking away more from your,
0: your personal life. So it just kind of makes it equal. Right, well, you know, you raised an important point, uh, Francis. I mean, I, I, you know, the we hear this all the time at the university. Um, and I know when I was in administration, we had to think about which, which employees were exempt and which employees were not exempt. What exactly does that mean?
3: There's a there's a difference between employers, uh, excuse me, employees. It's really for all employers that fall under FLSA. There are exempt employees who are not subject to the Fair Labor Standards Act. There's a a duties test really that you have to look at to see what the employee does to see whether they fall into the exempt or non exempt. But generally, your exempt employees are your professionals uh, with professional degrees like your lawyers, accountants. Uh, Your executive level employees, administrative employees, and then there are those with specialized duties, uh, computer programmers, IT operators, those come to mind right off. They're not subject to the requirements of the FLSA, and there are others uh, that you just have to look at as they come along, but they are not subject to the minimum wage or the overtime. So long as they're making certain parameters that are set for them, there are minimums that they have to be paid annually um, this, that, and the other. But once they meet those, they're not subject to the overtime at 40 hours
0: plus per se. You, you know, when it came up for us, it was kind of interesting. We have, uh, you know, the judicial colleges here, and we've had uh, uh, members from the judicial college on the, the show before, and they, they do great work. And um, they have some exempt employees and some non-exempt employees, and part of their job is to travel to, say, Jackson and and do uh, programs for judges down in Jackson. And, it never occurred to people until until it occurred to us. We you know we did catch on and we did uh, did rectify it. But you know if we had a non an exempt employee going down to Jackson and doing a, doing uh, programs, we didn't have to worry about how long they were there, that the travel took them away overnight or anything like that. But it, but non exempt employees, that was overtime uh, if we That's sent correct. them on a work related manner. So it's really it's important uh, that that businesses understand who are their exempt employees and non-exempt employees. I don't think we always, always do, but how do you know, how would you know which one is which?
3: Again, the, the non-exempt you would look at, they're mostly, uh, the, the, I guess you would say blue collar workers just to kind of put everybody into a group. They're the, they're the employees that actually do a lot of the legwork. Uh, and that's one reason that the, the FLSA, the Fair Labor Standards Act, looks at them because they are the people that are actually putting in the muscle to work. They make the operations run, and that's who employers rely on more than anyone else to really keep most of their businesses going. So it's easy to require too much of a, an employee. And the FLSA just comes in to say, hey, Mr. Employer, Miss Employer, you know, if you need somebody extra, that's fine, but you're going to have to pay them, and you're going to have to pay them a little bit more for that time. And uh, generally, I think it works out fairly well overall. It's a good balance, it seems like. yeah oh, you know um,
0: so I remember I mean some, some employees are, are at places where I guess we're supposed to get um, minimum wage. I remember I was a cook at a pizza place, and uh, I was a they said like you know when I first got there, you're a trainee, so we don't have to pay you. Uh, minimum wage. We can pay you a little bit less. I seem to be, a, I've been a trainee for a long time. It seemed really like it took me <laughs> one day to learn how to do it. Um, but um, so what about, what about people who make tips? I mean, are they, uh, are they under a different kind of minimum wage? Tipped employees
3: are considered differently. They're still subject to the minimum hour, uh, excuse me, the minimum wage, seven twenty five an hour. However, the employer can take a a credit, so to speak, of uh, $5, and I'm trying to remember exactly what it is, Uh, but it's basically the employee has to be paid at least $2.13 an hour from the employer. So the employer can take roughly a $5.12 credit toward that hourly rate as long as the tips that the employee... The waitress, waiter, whoever the tips personnel is, is someone who normally gets tips and who has gotten tips that make up that amount. And uh, there's some other qualifications that go into that. The employer can't uh, withhold the tips. They have to go to that employee, waiter, waitress, etc. Uh, and they can't pull pool the tips together. A lot of places that I see they pull the tips. They put them together. That can only be done if the tipped personnel are all normally tipped personnel. And a cook I don't think is normally tipped, although I guess that could be argued depending on the circumstance. But everyone has to agree to that and it comes forward uh, in an equal amount there. And again, they have to all consent to it. And one thing about the exception that the employer gets with the tipped employees, they have to have the situation just right. They have to advise the employee that there'll be a tipped employee and how it works. And basically, the employee has to acquiesce to that. They've got to say, okay, I understand that, and uh, we'll do that. And for some temp employees, it comes in very, very well. And uh, and I think it's very, very, very uh, earned. Most of the people I see that get tips, they work hard.
2: Well, you're listening to In Legal Terms here on MPB Think Radio with Professor Richard Gershon of the University, uh, University of Mississippi School of Law. I guess today is uh, Attorney Francis Springer from Springer Law Firm, and um, I had a little experience when it came to uh, uh, being tipped. I was a waiter back in my younger days, and yes, we got paid to two thirteen. and I always thought that was kind of strange because I guess the, the place I was working at, we didn't get those— $300 nights or $500 nights type of tips, you know. We make it $50, $60 or something like that, but it's just always, you know, something different right. than it's it. Just, I was like, I, well, uh, minimum wages, you know.
3: Minimum wages is, is extremely low. Uh, I, I don't know how anybody makes it on minimum wage, and a lot of states have higher minimum wages, uh, and that's arguable, obviously, because uh, the cost of the business is going to go up, but I just don't see how... Anybody can make it on a strictly uh, minimum wage rate, and and I know people that are – are working for that. So it's very, very difficult for them.
2: Yeah, 40 hours a week and you're still not, you know, pulling in what you need to pull in. No. It's, just a, it's a tough thing. Oh Well, we're going to um, be talking throughout the hour um, with uh, Wage and Hour Law with Attorney Francis Springer from Springer Law Firm. We would love for you to join the conversation this morning. Send an email to legal terms at mpbonline.org. And not everyone has a chance to listen to our show live, so you should feel very special if you're doing so. But if you've missed any of our programs. You can listen to the whole show at inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Java Chapman. And now the first step poster advisor. Is one of a series of e-laws, which is employment laws assistance for workers and small businesses developed by the U.S. Department of Labor to help employers and employees understand their rights and responsibilities under federal employment laws. You can get these posters available in English and other languages. Um, you can download these uh, posters free of charge and uh, printed directly from they're the calling for them already. Adv- yeah, they want these posters. I mean, they, they're kind of like— um, uh, almost like the cat posters and the inspirational posters that you see around workplaces. Um, it is, I think, against the law if they are not posted up.
3: Right. The employers, you know, certain categories are, are supposed to do that. And I apologize for that phone. I thought I had everything turned off. It was my pet peeves. <laughs> At least I'm not in Professor Gerson's class right now, I guess. Uh-oh. <laughs> but, uh, but, yes, they do have to have that up. And it's a lot of good information on there because employees, uh, this, this is complicated. And the ones I've seen explain it fairly well. Yeah. So I would advise anybody you know that sees those stop and look at it. You know, because those are your rights. You know, everybody's time is mm-hmm. valuable, and you you should be compensated for your your time and your your effort.
0: You know, and it's by the way, it's the it's not the phones in my class going off, which that does happen. It's the Funny TikTok videos that they forget to turn the volume down. <laughs> <laughs> I turned my volume down. I just didn't turn the ringer off. <laughs> no, I mean, no, it's quite all right. We're really happy to have you here, and Francis, you've always you're such a great and gracious uh, guest on this show. This is a great great program it. that y'all run. I'm glad to be part of it. We appreciate you. And and you know, one of the things that your website mentions that you do is that sometimes employees are misclassified. So how would an employee be misclassified. Why would that matter?
3: That goes back to the exempt and non-exempt. Uh, and again, there there have been over the years different ways of looking at this. But what it boils down to at this time is the duties that the employer does. And a lot of times that's done innocently. Uh, really, a lot of employers, they don't have lawyers on staff, this, that, and the other. So they're putting together the system they think that they uh, have is right, However, that may not be right. So if the employee realizes that they're misclassified, they need to bring that to the employer's attention. And if it's not agreed upon, not corrected or whatever, then they can seek you know, outside help either through the Department of Labor or through a private attorney. Uh, but an employer could do that also just uh, to take advantage of the employee actually knowing what they're doing. And uh, the Fair Labor Standards Act provides for a little different remedy if that's the case, if it's bad faith. So it could be innocent or it could be
0: intentional. Uh, I like to think most of them are innocent. Yeah, and it makes a difference, though. I mean, I know know, um, someone who is, and I I think about also the misclassification of uh, employee versus self-employed individual. Um, Right. It makes a difference from a tax perspective. We'll talk about that in a minute, but... Um, so how, now when, when someone comes to you, do they, I mean, how does somebody even know they've been misclassified to come and seek out your help?
3: It's not easy again, you know, for the, for the person to understand that usually it's if they've heard of somebody in a similar situation that has been found to have been done wrong, excuse me, they'll come forward. Then uh, I've had several cases like that where, where once an employee, uh, realizes that they're not being served properly under the law they'll come forward and uh, we we sometimes you know you're scared of retaliation so employees won't come forward but there's also uh, remedies for that as well so most of the time it's, it's from seeing or hearing of other people suffering the same situation
2: now, Francis, do you think sometimes it's a, a like a feeling of uh, being taken advantage of? I know I always remember this commercial I used to come on the radio about a law firm. You know, contact us if your employer is asking you to come in early, stay late, even if it's to do like little menial things to uh, boot up computers or something. They you may be you know uh, uh, in due for compensation or something like that. So you know somebody may not know that they are exempt or unexempt, but it's like, I'm doing a lot of work and I'm not being compensated properly, you know? Exactly. And
3: and that's not fair. I mean, that's that's uh, what we're there for and, and people deserve to be paid for their work. They can't be forced to work for free. And uh, if you're having to come in early and do something that applies to your employment and you're not being paid for it, uh, you probably do have an FLSA violation and uh, you may want to check into
0: that. You know, I know this is not in our our script, but I do have to ask this question. I mean, what if if an employee comes to you because they've been misclassified and they prevail, can their employer fire them in retaliation and say, well, you know, hey, you went to a lawyer and, you know, I was, uh, you know, you uh, you complained about me, so now I'm going to fire you?
3: Well, I can't say they won't fire them, but there is a specific remedy for that. If there's any type of retaliation, it can be shown to be back to, Or relate back to the employee trying to enforce the law, the FLSA law, then the employer is liable on top of whatever they owe them in unpaid wages. So while you can't say that one wouldn't terminate someone or or reassign them or something like that, if you can prove that it's in retaliation, you've definitely got a a separate cause of action.
2: But then that employer will be labeled as a I don't know, a bad employer, a bad company to work for? <laughs> it will,
3: because these are, these are public investigations. They're, they're public uh, lawsuits. Everything uh, I know in the federal court is on the PACER system, and anybody can go in and look at the pleadings. They can look at the judgments. Uh, generally, there are very few things that are uh, kept out of that system, and anybody can look at it, and especially if we're dealing with government money, if a government employer has to pay a settlement or a judgment or whatever, that's the people's business. And a lot of these will come with uh, kind of NDAs, with, with agreements not to disclose the settlement or whatever. I found that doesn't apply with the government because that is the people's money. They need to know where it's going, and, and we can't be quiet about it. But, uh, but yeah, there's there's a, a valid fear, I think, of retaliation.
0: But uh, the law does address that, and uh, it's pretty severe. Well, that's good, it's good to know. I mean, because I think people are listening might say, wow, you know, I think I'm being – Misclassified, or maybe my employer is not, not paying me fairly, I'm making me come in and do extra work or whatever and not paying me.
3: And one thing on top okay. of that, if I can real quick, Professor, sure. before we move on, because one thing sure. that people may be thinking, well, how can I pay for a lawyer if I'm not even getting paid what I'm supposed <laughs> to be paid? Well, the Fair Labor Standards Act is is unique. Generally, if you can prove that you've been done wrong, you get what you should have been paid, whether that be regular hours or overtime hours at that rate. And then you get that number double. You get that number again in liquidated damages. Kind of like, uh, Mr. Miss Employer, you should have been paying me, but since you didn't, now you got to pay extra. And all you have to do is show that you weren't paid what you were supposed to be paid, and those come in automatically, essentially. On top of that, the employer has to pay all of your legal fees. So you don't have to take a percentage, like maybe with a car wreck or something. You know, the attorney would take a percentage of that. The legal fees are awarded by the court under law. So uh, if somebody thinks they've got a problem, uh, that's a much easier way to find a remedy than to have to quote-unquote hire a lawyer.
2: Now, you're listening to In Legal Terms. We have a a guest attorney, Francis Springer, um, from the Springer Law Firm here in the building. We're talking about wage and hour law, Um, as always, with Professor Richard Gershon. You can uh, join the conversation this morning. If you have a question about um, wage and hour law, you may be um, thinking you're— treated unfairly and would like, you know, a little advice this morning. Now, earlier, Professor Gershon, um, we were talking about um, the misclassification between the exempt and unexempt um, um, employees. Now, next, I know uh, another type of misclassification, which can be um, uh, self-employed and not putting that down correctly, um, especially when it comes to uh, uh, taxes. Uh, What what do you say about that, Professor Gershon?
0: Well, you know, I, John, I'm so glad you, said, you you made that point because there's. I've always had, and this is a problem, I'm going to get in trouble with the law firms, but I always feel like when law firms hire summer clerks, they typically treat them as independent contractors, as self-employed individuals, even though they're only working for that firm that summer. And so I'd love to hear what Francis has to say about that. I always feel like they should be treated as employees. Because if you're not, if you're not, if you're treated as a self-employed individual, you have to pay your own uh, Social Security tax, your, your uh, you know, your self-employment tax. So, but if the firm pays you as an employee, they have to withhold that amount and pay half of that Social Security. So it may, it does make a difference. Francis, what do you think about that?
3: Oh, uh, that, that does happen. And again, this comes down to a duties test. Uh, and almost not so much under the F L S A as under regular law, whether an employee is a an employee of the organization or if it's a contract laborer, so to speak. Uh and not a contract laborer as is, is assigned by a a, uh, a business that does that, a person that just comes in and agrees to do a specific job. Generally the differences are, you know, a contractor is basically told what to do and they decide how to do it, when to do it, Uh, how to put it together, things like that. They're not really given specific instruction. Employees are different. They're usually given hours to work, assigned a specific job, told, hey, I want you to do this this way, and that's how they have to do it. Generally, those are the differences between the two. And uh, sometimes the summer associate, I guess, could fall into that position if they're looking to do maybe research on one project overall. But many times they actually do fall into the category or, excuse me, the category category. Category, if I can even speak it right, of an employee, and uh, should probably be treated that way. Um, but again, the the firm may or may not come under the FLSA depending on its size and and what goes on there, um, as with any employer.
0: And the, uh, by the way, the uh, reg, regulations to the Internal Revenue Code are really specific about the difference between employee and self employed individual. And every time I read them, I think, well, you know, I think those clerks probably should be treated as employees, but the firms save a lot of money by not having to pay those benefits. That's correct. Uh, That's great. great. So now, so what happens? I mean, if, if someone, do you, do you, have, have you seen a situation where somebody came in and they said, hey, I should be treated as an employee, but I'm being treated as self-employed? Are there provisions that deal with that? I've not personally had one of those, but
3: there are. Uh, and it would get kind of more into to tax law, like you said, than anything else. But that is going to roll over into FLSA. If it determined, say, they went a year or longer and it was determined that they were an employee and were treated as a, a contract employer, basically getting a 1099, paying all their taxes, you could come back and have a, a year's worth of overtime that could be due. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's definitely something to look at. And most attorneys, you know, if, if they work in FLSA, they'll kind of look at this and, and kind of get an idea before they go forward with litigation. But on top of that, anybody can report a suspected violation of the Department of Labor. And the Secretary of Labor, they've got thousands of employees across the country. They can investigate and kind of see what's going on. Um, easier than a lawyer can. But uh, either way, you can go and hopefully get a remedy if it's you
2: You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gerson is our expert host, and I'm Java Chapman, just your regular host. (laughs) We'll hope you'll subscribe to our podcast or find MPB Think Radio recordings at mpbonline.org slash radio. Now, if you're interested in hearing a discussion about minimum wage, we're just having a a little discussion with that. Um, That was our topic covered on MPB's Money Talk Uh, Money Talks with our guest, state economist Corey Miller. You can find a link to that podcast from March 16th of 2001 on the show um, information for this podcast. So find this podcast for today's show, and there will be a link to that show. Um, Now, this morning, we're talking about wage and hour law with our special guest attorney, Francis Springer. And um, we do have some phone calls uh, to get to. Let's first go to uh, Raymond uh, in Meridian, who has called to join our conversation. Good morning, Raymond. Good morning. What's your question today? I
1: was today? worried about, yes, sir. I was worried about the uh, employer changing the rate of pay uh, as referring to truckers. Uh, most of them are paid by the mile, and uh, when it gets changed from uh, to like uh, uh, to by the hour, then they're lost in um, in how much they're getting paid uh, as opposed to what they was getting paid. Now, in in my case, uh, I was uh, talking to uh, my boss about it, and uh, they they were saying, well, you're going to make more money. And then they get on the phone and they say how much money they're going to save by doing it by the hour. And I was wondering what the law was on that.
3: You know, I've never handled a... a issue with a trucker per se um but i'm thinking whatever the the proposal is the the driver needs to you know sit back and say hey let me look at this let me think about that and uh i know drivers are are generally you know together in unions and again this is outside of what i practice normally and i've not had any personal experience with this but I would think those issues are something that would come up, and it seems to me like, depending on what's going on, the mileage would probably pay better with something. But, I, again, I have no idea. I guess depending on the hourly rate. But uh, with minimum wage, I would think the uh, the mileage rate would come higher. And I hope I've kind of at least answered your question or pointed you in the right direction. Yeah.
0: That's,
3: uh, that's, uh, that's a that, great that, question. Did Go that ahead, answer sorry. your question,
2: Raymond?
1: Not really. Um what happened was, you see, uh, uh, is, is, uh, I started started getting about half the pay after all this happened.
3: I would suggest, you know, with what you've got, contact a, an attorney that does FLSA and run it by them. And uh, either that or call the Department of Labor and just ask them about it because they can kind of give you an idea if what's being done is legal or not. And as long as it's it's legal, you know, the, the agreement can be pretty much whatever, uh, and again, I've never had a, a situation like that. And I would have to research to see where uh, drivers came in under the FLSA.
0: And Francis, it does seem like it would. It's I, I think Raymond's question is a great one because it seems like that's awfully strange that an employer could just lower your ultimate income by changing the way they pay you. I mean, it certainly seems a little bit. Uh, underhanded if nothing else. I mean, and I can see, you know, businesses obviously they have to think about their bottom line too, but um, you know, they can't make it without the employees. So uh, yeah, I would love to know the answer to that question as well. It's a difficult balance. That's, that's for sure.
2: Now the one thing I would say, Francis, is uh, a lot of times when it comes to um, compensation for your work, a lot of, I guess, onus um, lends towards the worker because you, uh, the worker ultimately has to agree to the, the, like the rate of pay. Right. And, you know, um, I guess even with that change of rate, I guess, is it uh, illegal or um, legal for that worker to say, well, I'm not going to go for that. I will find a different, you know, (laughs) different employment.
3: One thing about uh, states like Mississippi is is, is what's called uh, an at-will state. Basically, you don't have any rights to your employment, uh, but at the same time, the employer doesn't have any rights to the employee. So they could they can both end it generally, and there's some exceptions, but generally either can end their, their employer-employee relationship at any time. And an employer, as long as they are paying minimum wage, they can pretty much adjust the the wages that they pay however they feel they have to. And it's up to the employee at that point, you know, do I still want to do this for that amount or do I want to find something else to do? Uh, and, you know, sometimes it can be explained and be understood. Sometimes it'll benefit, but uh, sometimes it won't.
0: It's a tough situation to be in sometimes.
1: Well, let's say yeah, I uh, just um, think
0: I, did, I was just going to say this, sir. I mean, This is going to, I'm going to point out that maybe the truckers ought to just slow down, you know, and that, <laughs> <laughs> I would be like 50 miles an hour because then you're going, it's going to take you a lot longer to tow those miles than it used to. So, That's I the mean, point. there is a there, there is a solution to that.
2: Well uh Raymond, we appreciate your uh calling this morning and let's continue with the phones. We have uh Cynthia uh in Paris um calling in today. Good morning, Cynthia.
4: Good morning. How are you?
2: Oh, we're doing fine. What's your uh what's your question this morning?
4: My question is is there a statue of limitation uh I retired say, 10 years ago, and then in the meantime, I found out that things weren't uh, handled as they were supposed to be. I worked for the government, so they have street rules, and my boss did not follow those rules, so I was wondering if there's anything I could do to get that checked out.
3: There is a statute of limitations. There's there's what's known as a look-back period. Generally, it's two years. There's a two-year look-back. Um, if there's shown to be an extreme violation by the employer, it can go back to three years. Now, what that looks at is when also the employee realized what was happening. And it has to be, you know, a bona fide I just found this out kind of thing. It can't be something, well, I thought I might have been because the law is going to really turn toward the employer the longer it is between the actual harm and the cause of action that's broad.
4: Okay, thank you so much.
2: Sure. We appreciate you calling this morning, uh, Cynthia. We're talking uh, wage and hour law with Attorney uh, Francis Springer and, as always, uh, my expert host, Professor Richard Gershon.
0: Java, you're you're an expert on lots of things I'm not an expert on, and I'm not an expert on many, or so anything. So, you know, I think you deserve that title as much as I do. But, um, you know, so, you know, I, I, that, you know, I think the, the, that question about the statute of limitations is just important generally. Francis, don't you agree? I mean, I think anybody that has a cause of action, if you have any doubt at all, um, sooner is better than later. That,
3: that's true but, with, with any legal issue, all. Uh... Uh, I guess you could say that really with any medical issue, it's kind of the same thing. The sooner that it's looked into, uh, the more available the evidence is to prove yea or nay. And uh, people's memories are usually fresher. And, and again, it's it's from something that you the court usually looks at as something you knew or should have known.
0: So the sooner the better, obviously. Now, let's let's talk about um. You know, could could I when we talk about job related work? So if my employer says, you know, well, you need to show up uh on Saturday uh because we're gonna have a company picnic and everybody's expected to be there, would that I mean, would that be something that would be job related if you have to be there? Uh pretty much if you're told to be somewhere
3: without a choice by your employer, that's gonna be compensatable uh because it's taking away from your Ability to do what you want and when you want. So, so you need to pay
2: for the company picnic. If
3: they make you be there. I would. Ask, that's my argument. Is you're told to be there. You're it's company related, job related. You, you pay why you while you're eating barbecue?
0: <laughs> well, employers should pay regardless. You know, on that. so anyway, it's still you know it's still your time. And, and so, what about training? What about mandatory training?
3: It was interesting what you what you spoke about earlier with employees uh, traveling to to training. Generally, all training hours are compensable, and that's that's if they're basically known of by the employer, the training applies to the job, and the employer doesn't stop the employee from going to the training. And some of those are classes that may be taken or, or may be taught. They would be a little different, obviously. But even driving to the training, and that's, that's an interesting aspect because generally the driver has to be paid for the time traveling. But those riding with the driver aren't subject to being paid under FLSA because I guess they're technically not working. They're just along for the ride. Uh, but you don't get, like, paid for sleeping. You know, if you're out of town on training, you get you get paid for the hours that you're training. Uh, so, and, and it can't be an agreement. You can't say, well, I'm going to go to this training, but I'm not going to build the employer. Uh, you can't. Agree to waive the FLSA, it's going to apply regardless.
2: Well, I know when I first started a couple of jobs training, that first week you did get paid, and then those hours were kind of soft, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I would be like, "Oh, okay, this is this is nice." But then you know you get into the hard work. Anyways. Yeah, and it, and it could be
3: lower in a situation like that. You know, trainee could get paid less, and or uh, uh, maybe you get paid after the training, but it still has to be minimum
2: wage. Yeah. Now, let's uh, we have a, a, another caller before our next break, um, and this actually wants to talk about uh, uh, the trucker call. Uh, this is Elizabeth in Mobile. Good morning.
4: Hi, good morning. I'm actually a labor and employment lawyer as well. All right. And great. I do know that the Department of Labor has specific regulations relating to truckers. Um, that actually has to do, one, with the weight of the truck. Um, If it's under 10,000 pounds, there's one rule. If it's over 10,000, it's a totally different rule. Um, And, you know, there is an exemption under the FLSA um, for truck drivers as far as overtime and minimum wage. Um, I would think that your best resource would be going to the Department of Labor regarding that. And it may also depend. I know you said the company as to whether you are actually an employee of the company or if you're an independent contractor that is contracting with the company. So that's all I have to say. Um, but I think the Department of Labor would be a great resource to go to because they will be very familiar with those regulations. I just happen to know a little bit. About, it
3: I'm over been- here taking
0: notes. I appreciate it.
4: <laughs> sure thing. Sure thing. Uh, thanks. Thanks.
0: Thank you for that call. That is, we really appreciate your expertise and, and weighing in on the show. And that's very helpful. Absolutely. Um, and So thank you. That's uh, great. And something, that's why I always, when, when I, I always laugh when I'm called the expert host, because I, I go to, on this show to learn. And I, I learned so much during the show. And I, uh, I just uh, learned something new as well. So um, now let's talk about tips. All right. Let's switch to tips for a second because that seems to be a place where that's always, you know, how the tip is done because if it's put on a credit card, how does the employee even get those tips? Does can the employer withhold those tips for overtime? How you know, are there any uh recourse is there any recourse for an employee in that situation? You know, as far as
3: the the workings of how it works with uh tips and and say cash versus credit card That I don't know. Uh, But what I do know under the FLSA is those tips go to that tipped employee. Unless, like we say, there's been a proper tipping pool set up, and uh, there's definitely uh, things to look at there. Again, it's got to be voluntary. It's got to be of all the tipped employees uh, with an agreement that they will be shared in that regard. So the employer, however they do it, they've got to ensure that the tipped amounts go to the employee. And that there are enough there to make up at least to the seven twenty-five an hour. And uh, Java and I were talking uh, during some of the breaks. You know, some of those jobs you can easily get over that amount, but uh, some of those jobs you may not make it to that amount. So the onus is on the employer to ensure that the employee gets at least minimum wage in you know, and a tip
2: related job. And I know when I was working my tip related job uh we did have to pool our um our, our tips and also the cooks were included in our tips and um you know, it's, it's just, with most teams, somebody was not really pulling their weight, <laughs> right? <and laughs> but and they they were cooks, reaping the benefits. <laughs> cooks
3: aren't generally tipped employees, so that may not have been legal at that time.
2: Oh wow, that was! A,
3: I know the statute of
2: limitations is up on that, so let's <laughs> we'll talk like, about it. was a long, it was a long time <laughs> we'll ago. See if you should have known about that or not. Well, let's go to our. Um, I believe it's going to be our last call for the hour. This is uh, Harold um, in North Mississippi. Um, wants to join the conversation. Good morning, Harold.
1: Yes. Sir. My question is, can an employer dismiss an employer because he does a task in a rush and too quick and uh, says that I can no longer keep you because you're hazardous to the company?
3: Generally in Mississippi, yes. Uh, There's nothing under Mississippi law itself that would prohibit that, but there are federal issues to look at. Uh, there could be discrimination issues regarding that. It depends on, a lot on the job and what it takes to perform the job, uh, you know, how reasonable that may be. Um, so I would say, you know, if that happens, definitely investigate your your legal recourse uh, because Mississippi, again, is an, an at-will employment state. There are very few things that an employer cannot just simply discharge an employee for, but there are federal overlooks that uh, guard a lot of that. So the first thing in that regard I think I would look at would be a potential discrimination issue. Oh,
1: thank
2: you. Yeah, thank you, Harold, for um, uh, giving us a call this morning. Um, it's, it's, it was, um, I guess, fun, fun? I guess is the proper term, to learn that uh, Mississippi is an at-will uh, state when it comes to work.
3: The uh, the legislature has not set up many Uh, reservations for employees to have rights, Uh, and the Supreme Court has ruled that without that, an employer can fire an employee for good reason, bad reason, or no reason at all.
2: Well, I guess "fun" was the wrong word. Interesting. That's that's the correct. That's the correct. I'm having fun this morning, but that was interesting to learn about the at right. wheel. Now, um, I know we're coming up on the, towards the end of the show, and uh, Professor Gershon, on the on the script, I think we have maybe the most important question um, of the day is uh, where do you file a complaint?
3: Absolutely. Uh, again, with with wage and hour, the Department of Labor is the federal entity that oversees all of these regulations. Uh, An employee can file a complaint with the Department of Labor to have it investigated. And they can also consult with an attorney that handles these. The Department of Labor obviously will will work a little faster. They can get into the employer and look at records a lot quicker than you can through litigation. But sometimes with the Department of Labor, you don't get everything that you could get through a private lawsuit. Um, Liquidated damages sometimes are delayed if they're awarded at all in those regards. Uh, but they're definitely going to be awarded in a private lawsuit if you can prove that you were uh, injured, done wrong. So, Department of Labor or an attorney. So, how you know if somebody
0: has a claim, uh, which would you recommend? Bridget, uh which is going to be their best recourse?
3: Probably, my experience right now would be a private attorney, uh, especially since COVID. I know the Department of Labor has been backed up like all agencies are, so it's going to take a little time for them to get into it. Uh, now, that's not going to reduce their time to look back. You know, once a complaint's made, it's pretty much solidified that everything's looked at from that point. Uh, it just depends on the circumstance with the individual, and and you can do both. You can do both, but if the, if the DOL, Department of Labor, finds out that you've got an attorney working on it, they're probably going to tell you just to go that route because they've got so many other
0: things to do. This has been great. And, and, you know, Francis, if somebody needs to get in touch with you, how would they do that?
3: Uh, They could go to SpringerLawOffice.com. It has my information there. Or call me here at my office in Jackson.
2: Now, this has been a a very interesting uh, conversation as we are coming up on the end of the show. Uh, Professor Gershon, I appreciate your um, expertise (laughs) uh, this morning. And uh, Francis, I appreciate you for uh, coming in and always being kind with your time. My pleasure. um, if you did not know, um, to go along with that, at Will State, uh, that Mississippi is, we don't have a, an official state minimum wage. No. But but the federal um, uh, minimum wage is $7.25 an hour. Um, we are one of five states, Alabama, Louisiana, Tennessee, South Carolina, that doesn't have a uh, separate state minimum wage. So... Do with that information as you will. (laughs) That's a wrap for In Legal Terms. Once again, Francis, thank you for joining us. And uh, we appreciate you for participating in our broadcast. This one and many podcasts that are available to listen to from the MPB public media app. Um, this is In Legal Terms. Our team consists of board engineer Jay White, Carl Screener, intern Charles Arnold, and podcast producer Jermaine Flood po- for Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Java Chapman, and join us next Tuesday, 10 a.m. for In Legal Terms, only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.